Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, or welcome to Stage Door Johnny. I'm Jonathan Cake, and this is the second part of my chat with the great Jez Butterworth. Oh man, this is such a treat. And I think you're in for a good one. Without further ado, here he is. Here's the second part of Jez. One of the things that I love so much about your plays is the world. I love how generous you are to the people you choose to invite into that world. Meaning, every character, I feel like, if you feel like it's worthwhile inviting them onto the stage, sooner or later, that character will get to explain themselves yes. or express something or have a moment to yes. be a human being. I mean, I think it's important that we compare to Shakespeare. Because mm. he, yeah, mm. because mm. he was... Because he was an actor too. This is a crackpot theory of mine. Because he was an actor too. Do you think there's anything to that idea that you, you are deliberately finding moments for every actor in the company to be able to appear in your work? I am. And, and I, can't, I couldn't bear the idea of somebody spending their whole night. I, you know, when I got to university, my first role was... I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Rode or Rode in, in Three Sisters. Fedotic and Rode, they're the two, right. they're the two soldiers. Yes. And I think I appeared or he appears in two scenes for like a total of about 90 seconds. Right. And the rest of it, I was sitting on my ass backstage and I just thought I was quite angry with, with Chekhov because it was, it's like, well, that's just not fair on actors forever. Now, maybe you could say somebody gets blooded. In a role like that, blood the kids, don't blood an adult. It's, right. it's, it's humiliating. And I also feel that if you're going to make something that, that is organically whole, then absolutely every part of it must be, right. must be doing its job. And I think that what the, I've always thought that what the actor wants is identical to what the audience wants. They want the same thing. And I think that if I feel goosebumps as I'm writing something and the actor feels goosebumps when they read it and then when they perform it, that the audience will too, that it's just a direct, Thing. But the actors and the audience want exactly the same thing. The audience want to enjoy every actor who comes on stage. Yeah. They want to be able to tell you at the end of the ferryman who 26 people are. Now, if you don't give that person something that's memorable to do, they're not going to remember them. You know, we've all seen plays at the end of them um, <laughs> where you get to the end of it and it's just like, well, well, I'm sorry, I don't actually, you know, you're taking the bow and it was who were you? I don't think that's fair on the actor. It's not fair on the audience. It's, it's, it feels to me to be yeah. lazy. So the thing that I'm writing at the moment, I would say, in terms of the actual craft of it, all of the like the, the really steamy cogs whirring like work of it is just 
working out the maximum that you can give to the minimum number of actors. The thing about the world, though, I find sort of so fascinating, because quite a lot of playwrights, quite a lot of plays, can't cope with that sort of depth and breadth. Do do, do you know what I mean? It has to be pursued Mm. in a linear way, Mm. or the world will sort of sag and fall apart. Mm. It feels like your worlds are capacious enough to hold it. And, And it's one of the things, again, I sort of find extraordinary about your plays. The sort of novelistic detail of the worlds that is going on mm. at the same time. Not only that characters fleshed out, the world is sort of fleshed out. And it made me think at one point when I was looking at, oh, you know, thinking about all your stuff, why not a novel? Have you ever thought of writing a novel? Has that ever appealed to you? No, it hasn't. It's, it's never appealed no. to me. And I think the reason is that you can't meet up with the characters from a novel and have a drink with them or a meal after the, after the book's finished. And that's put a lot of characters in something. Someone's right. going to want to go for a drink. Right. You know, I, I just feel that it, it, for some reason it has to be a part of life. Like, imagine if I did write a novel and, and, and it outlived me and yeah. someone was going to be picking it up on some grassy bank, some teenager in, you know, 2071 and enjoying it. Whatever. That's one thing. But if a group of people have to actually put a band together and spend three months together and live in this thing and really find out about it. not read it and put it down but i live in it because i'm doing it for the actors not for the audience right. they have to live in that thing it will be alive and they will experience whatever loss it was i was trying to record they'll experience in a way that will bring it back to life and they will argue with each other and they will sleep with each other and they will become friends for life so that's why not a novel is it the band aspect of it that is particularly Appealing to you, the liveness, the, the, the full, full room, as you said, the sense of it being sh- a shared endeavour. Yeah, I mean, my involvement in that, personal involvement in that, is less and less. It's like when we did Jerusalem just now, I showed up at the, I showed up once during the rehearsals for the read-through. I came and spoke to the actors. I went to the first night and the last night. Right. So I'm not a part personally of that band right, right, experience right. anymore. But I very much was in the part. It was what yeah. drew me to it. You know, the, I, the reason I did plays all the way through senior school was that we were at a boys' school and you had to get the girls from Loretto College to come along. And it was the only chance you could get to, to be 13 and 14 and, and stand near a girl. Got it. I think that's traditional. I think it is. And, and so, yeah, that whole sort of sense of it being something that is, that is a shared endeavour as yeah. well. It's not, just, it's not just me. Let's go back to what, what the parts, different parts of the theatre make you feel. Lobby slash bar. Theatre lobby slash bar. So we've gone in the theatre. Do you ever overhear people talking about your plays? Sometimes, yeah, but only in the lobbies of theatres. Right. <laughs> not in the post office right. next door or, no, sure. or, or down the road. It's that odd status you have as a playwright where you are the man who grows the largest marrow in the village on fate day (laughs) and when you walk into the village hall it's like here comes mr chambers (laughs) with his marrow but as soon as he's at home or walking down the street or on the bus monkeys right so it's an odd kind of like whatever you want to call it notoriety but it is extremely circumscribed when i think of you moving across a theater lobby that you're of one of your plays how does it make you feel? Always uh, moving, always slightly uncomfortable. Right. Once I'm sort of sitting down, still a bit uncomfortable. Right. I'm not really like wonderful with the whole sort of 
with with that bit of it. And I say don't don't look for. It's not like I walk towards a theatre where I've got something on or any theatre and think, <laughs> right, yeah, check this out. No, not not at all. Is watching it hard for you? Is it hard in rehearsals watching it being sort of moulded? When you have such a particular, I'm imagining a particular thing in your head. No, it's not. I love it, and I right. and really all I'm all I'm asking myself is: Does this feel more alive than right. the thing I imagined, or less alive? Right. Not wrong, right? And if so, how do I make it that it's most alive? Right. And so I love participating in that because that's all I'm really watching out for. Speaking about lobby lobbies and bars, I remember standing with you and Mark Rylance after the first night at the Royal Court of Jerusalem, 2009. And we were standing at the bar with a druid. He was in, do you remember this? I do indeed. He was, he was in full druidical robes and a big hat. Mm. He must have been very complicated to sit behind. Yes. Whether he checked the hat, yes. it's hard to say. He had it on at the bar. Yes. And he said, I hope this isn't a spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't see it, but he said, no one was really speaking because we were all sort of numb with what just, we'd just seen. And the druid broke the silence and he said, he said to Rylance, he said, um, when you drum at the end, I think the giant comes. And Rylance said, yeah, I think he does too. And you said, I know he does. And I suddenly realized I was the only non-druid. <laughs> <laughs> I realised you had sort of, in a, in a weird way, perhaps I was a druid, with honorary druid, you'd made us all druids. We were all just wearing the robes and the hat. We'd all seen the giant approaching. I remember that druid. I'm not sure whether that druid is, you would describe him as being at the back or the front of the long conger of druids I've been since. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been a lot of them. And, um, convention of druids, yeah. And the thing that they all seem to have in in common is a uh, is yeah is an absolute faith in whatever it is that's sure. happening there and the hats. Yeah, yeah. Life after the play, for sure. Oh, mate, I was. Um, oh, this is a total tangent. I was having the photographs taken for this artwork for this podcast this morning in front of various stage doors around the West End. Thanks, very sweetly. You can never be too literal, and. Um, Molly, the very sweet young photographer, hadn't seen Jerusalem. And so we took it in turns, me and Kitty, who was sort of coordinating the whole thing, to describe to her that last scene. Mm -hmm. And we described to her like it was a sort of, like it was either an action movie or an historical event that we'd just seen on the news, you know. There was something so completely real about it to us in our imaginations. We all got Chills, thinking mm. about mm. it. She got chills being told mm. it mm. secondhand that's, those without are the kind Mark Rylance playing the drum. Well, it's just extraordinary. Okay, so I'm going to ask you the questions, mm. which seems like an extraordinary cop-out, but I think it's important that I do. Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask you the questions that people have written to me when they knew that I was interviewing you, and all the questions that they are too scared to ask you. They asked me to ask you. So Damien Lewis asked me, why do you keep following him? <laughs> Sorry, we can move on from that one. I think it says more about Damien. It's probably oh, not you. Rufus Jones, brilliant actor, writer. He says, okay, so in TV, there's an accepted general reality 
that actors were allowed to slightly change or sometimes paraphrase lines to suit delivery without sort of changing the meaning. But in theatre, less acceptable. Are you very much a read-my-fucking-words playwright, or are you flexible about what people say? I am flexible about what people say in rehearsal to a point because it might be more alive, or it might they might find a rhythm or, or a quicker way through the words than I did. But I am absolutely not into just go out there and it's free time on the ice. Right. Because by that point, we have boiled it down to how, how many syllables the play has. Uh, with the exception of if something goes awry and then really fill your boots. You know, if, if I remember the, the, all the lights going out once in New York and Mark just went to town. And, you know, and I'm not going to come out and go, you know, and, and howl, Excuse me. howl him about that. Right. But I don't think it's, um, it's sometimes when I'm bored, you know, and I'll sit and I'll Google myself and someone will have done an audition piece on YouTube and they are always extemporizing on what it is. I've written, and by the third one, I switch it, uh, switch it off. Wow. I don't think that's on. I think I, I, I didn't approximate right. what it was that I'm trying right. to, what it is that I'm trying to do. I have had certain actors who, who there was one actor mm-hmm. in the in the ferryman when we first did it, where I went in and suggested they should put his name up next to mine outside <laughs> the play because he had written substantially, <laughs> he'd written enough of it by WGA rules to deserve a credit. <laughs> Um, did you take the hint? They did. But yeah, I think that it's written that way for a reason. And I'm not all over that. And certainly not in rehearsal. Because what if, you know, if you write a play like The Fairman yeah. and 10 or 12 of the people in it are Northern Irish and you're not, they'll have a quicker way through 10 lines in the, the course of the right. thing that you would ever have dreamt of. You just referred to Harold there. You mean Harold Pinto? Harold, yes. Who, who you had a very intense, close relationship I think of all the, the writers I've ever known, I would say it was the, the closest and the huh. most intense and the most important. What did you get from him, do you think? I got uh, confidence. His faith in me meant everything. I remember walking away from lunch with him once, and he, I'd shown him something that I'd written, and the things that he said about it meant that I kind of sort of, but like driving to Pusey, I sort of came round about four hours later in Devon, you know, mm. just having gone home. It was just, it just knocked me out. And, you know, I've always been f- mostly, com- 51% voting for me, confident as a writer. But it would drop below it sometimes. And it was like he filled in all the cracks. He filled in all the gaps. It was just like, if you're going to do this, do it. And he was so utterly, almost pathologically confident and certain that it was just like, I just got lifted up onto shoulders. It was mm. like, it's like, right, let's, let's give this everything mm. and let's not give a fuck what anyone thinks. Mm. It's confidence, mostly. Yeah. Did he live to see Jerusalem? He didn't. He didn't. I had three mentors, I would consider the mentors, which was Harold, Anthony Mingella, and Sidney Pollock. Yeah. And they all died the year before I wrote oh, Jerusalem, good. which I don't oh. think is a coincidence. No. I knew Harold too, as you know odd and different context because I played for his cricket team Mm. for decades and he was the most psychotically competitive Mm. bastard (laughs) I think it's fair to say I've ever come across inside Mm. superficially genteel sport of cricket Mm. he was he would want you to destroy them and hurt them Mm. and leave having eaten all their tea yes yes he was he was he would insist on (laughs) 
full uh, a full boot on the throat yes. triumph. He rang me up once when he was because he, he was such an extraordinary actor, wasn't he? When you directed mm-hmm. him also as an actor, you directed him in the movie of Mojo. I did, yeah. I, mean, I just could tell you this quick story. He rang me up once when he was doing doing a movie with Alice, our friend Alessandro Nivola. He was doing, was it Sense and Sensibility? I can't remember. It was an Austin actor. It was, yeah, I think it was. And he, he'd been kept waiting. He just <laughs> rang me up. He rang me up to ask about my availability for Sidcup. Are you available for Sidcup? But I could tell he didn't really want to talk about my availability for Sidcup. He, what he really wanted to talk about, to tell me, was that he'd walked off the set. He said, I, I have to tell you, I walked off the fucking set. <laughs> I said, did you? He said, yes, I fucking did. He said, I was kept waiting. I was called in at some ridiculous hour, 7, 7.30. And I was kept waiting in costume all day, all day. And just when they said, uh, Harold, somebody knocked. said, Harold, we're going to be ready for you in five minutes. I said, no, you're fucking not. I'm off. <laughs> he said, and I left. And I said, how did it feel? He said, fantastic. <laughs> I felt wonderful. He said, and there was a pause. He said, I don't suggest you try it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a sense. It won't work for everybody. Oh, yeah, I love it. But I could do that. Oh, it's glorious. So what was it like to direct him as an actor? He was a wonderful. He was brilliant in your movie of Mojo. So Mo- Mojo, I haven't seen it for years, but I do remember last time I saw it, I thought there's like about four good scenes in it and one great scene. And the great, the great scene is the scene of him and Hans Matheson yeah. on the couch as he's seducing yeah. him. Are you slap or are you tickles? <laughs> tickles or slaps. And you could just feel it. It was the, it was the goosebumps. Thing. It was like the difference. It was like the whole thing was just. It was like it was the first time in the entire adventure that I had sat there and thought, "This is alive." Is alive. Yeah. It was the first bit. I was reading an uh, 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 interview you gave. I've been doing for these things as though I needed to research you, but I did anyway. <laughs> and there's an extraordinary thing which I think tells gets really to the heart of what is going on in your plays. I think. And that thing that you were talking about when you forgot your shield and you're mm. running through the darkness waiting to get to the stage and everyone's waiting for you and you think this is amazing. That sense of out of an accident there is total attention is something I think that is just so extraordinary. You wrote about the baby on stage in The Ferryman. You wrote, um, I'm just going to read it back to you. you wrote, it was the very first idea I mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. in a very Harold way, right? Harold would start mm-hmm. with an image, famously from many of his plays, and he would just pursue that image until it became a play. The first image you wrote, that you, you, you said to this guy, that came to me was lights up and baby alone on the stage with an old lady sitting in a chair over there and it being sunset. It's fantastic. And that ended up being the start of the second act rather than the start of the play. Mm-hmm. For my taste, it works just aesthetically rather than narratively, coming back from your interval to find a baby abandoned on the stage is a great way to just make people forget what they've seen and just to worry about that child. Mm. I remember it so well. We all like, mm. it's a baby. Mm-hmm. It's a real baby. Mm. Around any theatrical experience, you said, is the chance that it's going to go wrong. And I think to embrace that and use it adds to your presence in the theatre. The illusion, but also the collusion between what's going on on the stage and what's going on off stage. If the baby throws a fit, everybody's in the same situation. <laughs> They're going, the baby's throwing a fit. Mm-hmm. No one's going, the baby's throwing a fit. I want my money back. <laughs> and the interviewer said, has anything gone wrong? And you went, all the time. Mm. The goose has laid an egg into the hand of the actor mm-hmm. that's holding it. 
It's shat all over the stage. Mm-hmm. The babies have vomited. The rabbit doesn't want to come out of the pocket. All of that stuff has happened. And I imagine that those are among the most fun nights to attend the show. I was just thinking about that particular thing mm. that you managed to capture. It doesn't have to be as literal as having a baby or a goose. But it is that thing that Declan Donnellan, you know, the great visionary director, Chief by Jowl, had this wonderful thing about being present. And how hard that is to do. You're talking about exactly what you're talking about with Harold in your movie. Mm -hmm. He says, to be truly present is the most astonishing thing. You occasionally get glimpses of it, like when you witness a car accident, for example. All your shit gets blown away in a moment, like that. And you become entirely attentive. You're not concentrating anymore, or you're not trying to. It's the difference between being in love and loving. Everything is pure. He says, you remember the room slowing down. You remember a sugar cube or the fag end of a cigarette. You're so aware because you're lost in attention. And uh, uh, thinking about you... It's beautiful. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Really beautiful. I think he had it particularly from Peter Brook. You know, I think this sense of the theatre should be a controlled emergency. A hundred percent. That makes you pay attention in that pure way so that time slows down like he's describing. That is bullseye. Yeah, I I think a much quicker way to describe what I was trying to do by making plays interesting rather than boring is that I had this analogy early on that most plays were like trying to roll a big boulder uphill and you have to roll them downhill. They have to be moving downhill. They have to be moving with velocity and purpose but crucially once a boulder is rolling downhill it's really fucking dangerous and you've got to get out of its way and so that's the exact place where i want to 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 pitch my work so it's not just a case of a baby or let's say in the same play a a lamp catching right 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 right, right at the top which i replaced the baby with i thought right let's have a fire on the stage and everyone in the audience will sit there (laughs) and think they're going to die (laughs) mr sands in the auditorium they're going to die and then have the actors put that out at their leisure and suddenly you're in the hands of something that has i think it's called echt you know that reality that kind of uh, you're, you're really in the room you've been reminded that you're actually there you might die here you know and the the boulder starts to move i think at that at that point and become the play becomes becomes dangerous but you're in the hands of of magicians and so then i'll try and do it like just to randomly pick like in, in the middle of, of you know if you take the drum at the end of jerusalem well that drum's used in the middle of the play as well it's it was hanging from the ear of the giant and ginger is when he asks where the drum could possibly be now for evidence he's sitting on it then it's like well go on then hit it and it just feels you feel the whole play just driving off a cliff right. it's like nobody could hit that drum and corroborate you know the, the story that he's mm. just told that the giants will come mm. but somebody steps forward ginger says he won't do it but lee says he will now at that point if you just stop the play it's like where are we going <laughs> you know it's like it's driven out into an area where it's just like it's become uncomfortably not possible to continue down this down this road and it feels like the boulder's really moving at that point but he does beat the drum people forget they always forget that the drum is actually beaten twice in that uh, in that show. Uh, and the first time he does it, his son, his, his eight-year-old boy walks Oh, uh, yeah. Everybody forgets that. Yes. But all of that, without that whole bit, you don't load the ending of the, yeah, the play. Right. But in and of itself, it's not 
exposition. It doesn't smell like burning a wet donkey like most exposition does. It's light on its feet in the moment and it feels like magic and you're using it, you're loading it for, for later. So it's all got to be in that register. It's no good just telling people things or even show, you know, the show don't tell. Don't do either. Make them think it. Right. Don't show them, don't tell them it. Make them think it. And then they're in, in, involved. The other thing is, is that the, I don't care how many sword fights you have in a play. I don't care who wins. And neither does anybody else. No one ever thought, no, go on. Oh, God, he's going to... No one cares. Okay, No one cares who lives or dies in plays. Right. That is not, that's not the boulder rolling. That's not where the danger is. And it's not where the aliveness is of like, what's going to happen to the baby? What's going to happen to the baby is people's dignity. That's all anybody cares about, ever. And the reason why I know this, I was once in Bath and I watched a man walking along get hit by a bus, thrown 30 feet, stand up and carry on as if nothing had, had, had happened. <laughs> because he couldn't bear... Right, to acknowledge. To acknowledge what had just happened to his dignity. <laughs> and he will go off and he will die in an alley uh, rather than have somebody come up and say, are you all right? We saw you get hit uh, by a bus. So that's more important to him as his yeah. dignity. And I think it's more important to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I would rather die than dot, dot, yeah, yeah, dot. Yeah. The reason why I did just come back to the film thing, everybody's dignity is at stake in the theatre, the actors mm. and the audiences, just by being in the room together when the lights go down. Oh. It's like, this could go so horribly wrong, this could be an accident. And I know some people who won't go to the theatre because they can't bear the idea <laughs> that the actors will forget the jeopardy. Right. Yeah. They can't bear it, so it's yeah. already pitched. Yeah. Like the arena that we are in is one where dignity is at stake. Now, happily, dignity is the only subject drama gives a fuck about. And we all know those moments in plays where some, you know, in a doll's house, where, where the most alive bit is when his and her dignity is, yes. is plugged into the mains. That's why we go along. Mm. We go along to have our dignity tested mm. and the thing that tests it the hardest is lies so we're going along to learn to spot lies that's fantastic back to my questions <clears throat> kate weinberg asks oh maybe this is an apropos <laughs> kate the novelist kate weinberg asks what are you scared you'll be found out for for a novelist this is poor syntax she's ending with the, is that a preposition i think she has <laughs> but but we, we, you sort of get the idea. What are you scared you'll be found out for? At the moment, nothing. But there have been periods in my life where I've, where I've been walking around afraid to be found out for something. I think I've been afraid to be found out that I'm no longer in love with someone, let's say. I think the most, the most recent thing I've been afraid to be found out was when after a year in lockdown of absolute temperance, I started having the odd drink. And I felt like, because Laura and I started on the same day, that I was letting her down. Now, she told me that I wasn't letting her down until I was letting myself down, because, of course, any, anyone would tell you. But I felt like there was a brief bit where it was like, what if I get found out? And then I thought, I'm in my 50s, what am I doing? You know, but I did get solidly found out. Got it. And, you know, I think that was the last thing where I felt worried, like, oh, what are people going to think? Because I don't actually have any other, like, what will people think right. in me? I think I had a bit. I think it went around the early 2000s over a lot of dinners with Howard. 
who really didn't care what people thought. No, he didn't give a fuck. Uh, and it was so authentically himself mm, and it was infectious I really felt like it sort of finished off a kind of a I don't know a kind of an arrogance that I that I was already teetering on the edge of but it's a good question from Kate she knows I've been found out for a couple of absolute doozies (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I'm capable of getting found out right Someone, a future guest on this podcast, <clears throat> once said to me very seriously, your work is going to suffer if you don't pay more attention to telling the truth in your life. Which I thought was, at the time, of course, I sort of didn't quite understand how to mm. deal with it. But I think he was right. Does that, is that something that feels like well, it makes sense it, to you? It depends what you mean. Yeah. I mean, it depends what you mean by truth. I think that if you, because the subject of drama is the lie. Because a plot is quite literally a yeah. plot. It's a plot against something behind somebody's back. It's doing something they don't know. Or it's telling them something that isn't true. That's a plot. That's where plots begin. So I think that the, but the subject of drama being the lie, mm. to have no experience of that and to always have been a, a, a truthful soul, I think would... would, would render you a little bit um, uh, hampered in understanding how people behave when they're building up to a lie, when they lie, after a lie, when they're found out from a a, a lie. So I'm glad to have lived the life of a a, a low-down liar through large periods of my, my life. But I do think the making of all of that was being able to make a statement like that, was to be able to look at that honestly. You have to look at how I was like when I was at university or drunk here or, or unhappy there. Why it was I would do that, behave like that. But I think being truthful about that and knowing that is the sort of the, is the missing element. That would be my very long-winded restating of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a very interesting dance, isn't it, between truth and untruth. In all our lives as artists, which I hesitate to call myself, but it certainly fits your job description. It's a complicated world, particularly as a storyteller that you inhabit. You are one of the most brilliant enlargers of the absolute truth. So I'm going to read you an email from from Laura. Just to finish that off, I I can't bear to think of what it would be, how the world would be a poorer place if you weren't. (laughs) Personally and professionally. I once um, remember telling a story about walking along the beach in Santa Monica with Laura and uh, Dawn and suddenly discovering that there was like hundreds of oranges washing up on the on the beach and how we just took the oranges and that was our breakfast. We were heading to Shatter, we didn't have to. There were two oranges. <laughs> <laughs> two is as good as a hundred. Yeah. It's still well, the breakfast. It, that's the thing. But so in my in my head, I and I think I probably realised as I was telling <sighs> the story that two oranges was really not going to do it. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. At some point. Yeah, so I yeah. might have been conscious. Sure, I don't sure, remember. Sure. It's got to be a hundred oranges. Um, look, uh, yeah. that thing that I was saying about the very first thing where we began, where, where I end up like a salmon swimming up river yeah. to Pusey, my life sits so template-like on the stuff that I write that it's often difficult to tell the one from the other. You've known me long enough to know that I am someone who, if, uh, sorry, I switched on my phone. Right. If, and now everything's coming out. <laughs> but if something has happened 
in our shared past. It will take me about 10 seconds to tell you yeah. the week sure. and the day yeah. and what was going on around yeah. it. The filing system of your brain. Uh, so the other day I idly Googled this thing and it's called uh, myesthesia. I sent it to Laura this morning and she said, yes, but is there a medical term for someone who accurately remembers the date but greatly exaggerates the event? <laughs> what a magnificent combination, though. I suppose you could, I don't know, you could, you could have it the other way around. It might be less fun. It might be less fun. <laughs> One last question from uh, uh, Emily Mortimer. Lovely. Actress and writer, great Emily Mortimer. Do you get jealous of actors? Do you wish you could have been a performer? My dad, she says, uh, her dad was John Mortimer. So John Mortimer, great barrister, playwright, novelist. He said, my dad always said he'd like to have been Fred Astaire, dancing down a white staircase with a silver top cane, but he knew it would never happen. So writing was next best. So I do. But I don't think it's next best. I still think I've got the best job, but I get jealous. And I get jealous because I think there is a, during a production, there is a kind of an understanding, almost like a cant, that actors share, from which I feel completely excluded as the person that has already done their job and is now just hanging around. I do at times like that, I kind of feel it's part, it is more than, than two-thirds wonder and gratitude but it's about a third feeling slightly jealous of the fact that they've got something uh that they're sharing something that i wish i could participate in but thank god i'm never ever going to attempt to again <laughs> all right last 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 i promise question you've won every meaningful theater award right jerusalem was called the greatest play of the 21st century None of this is in your, you, you write the plays, but this is, this is the outside sort of validation, as well as the experience I had on the street this morning, where we're all describing the end of one of your great plays to a person who's never seen it. And we're all getting overexcited in a chilly street in Soho, just thinking about what that must have been, was for us. You have both things going on. So the, the thing I want to know really is, what do you still want from the theatre? Maybe this is a, a, a platitude, but I do feel like I've just started. I do feel like I'm just getting going. Maybe it's because I haven't written many things, but I do feel like it feels like it just, it just started. And I think there's something about the way in which I engage with it, which is it is kind of like I wait for it to show up and then I write it down. That doesn't wear itself out mm. and also doesn't reflect on, on me. I don't walk around thinking that I'm... I think I've always walked around thinking I'm pretty okay, pretty okay. When I was like eight years old, I've always been confident. But I don't think I'm great because, or things are wonderful because I can write plays because I know at the end of it that it's had very little to do, to do with me. It's an unconscious thing. So you can't really feel, feel that responsible for things which are that unconscious. I would want more of that. I would want to be able to be able to do that for the rest of my days really would want to and I would feel I, f I feel like the next thing that I would, would do, none of my plays know about each other, they don't resemble each other it's not like you could take a character from one and chuck them in the other, they all sit completely discreetly and so whenever I start one like I'm doing at the moment it's just a straightforward beginning again and it's got all the, the, the thrill and the, 
the excitement and the wonder that, that starting out in the first place had. I, I remember once, um, just going back to Harold, when I'd written Jerusalem, we'd had a read-through of it, it wasn't quite working, and Harold had died, and Ian was doing a, a, a benefit evening for something, like a, the evening, you know, the World Salutes Help into at the National, had like 90 actors in it or whatever, and I went along to that. And the next day I realised I'd left my bag in the in the National and I had to go back and get it. So I went back to get my bag and I said, well, we'll have it for you here in half an hour at the stage door. So I wandered off to the bookshop and I went through the, the books there and I, I was looking around and there's this book by David Edgar called How Plays Work. So I thought I'll have a little look in that. And I'm just thumbing through it and there's a little chapter on on uh, on subplots and just explains to you in a paragraph what a subplot is. Now, I didn't have a subplot. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Christ, I need a subplot. So I dreamt up a whole subplot to do with Lee uh, going to Australia mm. and all of that in that bookshop. Went and picked up my bag. And as I was walking back across the uh, the Thames, I threw the book into the Thames because I'm not getting caught with that on, <laughs> on me. But as a as a, a sort of a superstition or always a little joke to myself, before I start, before I go away to finish play, start playing, I buy the latest book on like right. you know the, on how to write a play, <laughs> and I pack it and I take it with me in the hope that there'll be something else <laughs> in, in there that I can just suddenly pull out in the same way. Now it hasn't happened, but the last one that I just bought, I just thought I was bored there, um, the, the, off in the countryside. I thought I've got the book. I'll get out to see if there's anything happens. There's like three chapters on me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm reading these things going this isn't right at all this isn't what I did at all and I suddenly thought maybe these books are all bullshit <laughs> but no I, I, just to say I do feel like I've got sitting down now I'm as scared and as really? in a state of, terrified and in a state of wonder as I would be if I was starting this back in the early 90s it feels exactly the same I feel so lucky to have been around watching you write and watching your plays be performed. It's been one of the great great privileges of my life. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, man. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Jez Butterworth, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremy Butterworth. Oh, what joy for me. You know, it really is one of the great, the great gifts of the, doing this podcast that I get to store these conversations that I've really sort of been having versions of, different versions of my whole life. But now 
I get to collect them somewhere. And when I've known someone as long as I've known Jez, nearly a quarter of a century, it feels incredibly valuable to try to do the impossible, as I said at the beginning of the first episode, the first part of this, to try to, I don't know, get close to understanding how his talent is his talent. It's an impossible job, as I said, but I love the attempt. I really love the attempt and I love having it. And Jez, if you ever listen to this, which you may not, I'm so glad of the fact of you. I'm, I'm very grateful for your friendship and I'm very grateful for you. I loved it. I loved all that stuff about why you can't go for a drink with the characters from your novel. <laughs> so good. Why he's in a conga line of druids, his um, relationship with Harold, Harold Pinter. Gosh, that was such a seminal, seminal thing in his life. That stuff about accidents on stage I thought was fascinating because it really cross-referenced my interview with Sam Mendes, which if you haven't heard, he talks a lot about how Jez liberated him when they worked on The Ferryman together, which is his great play, The Ferryman, his last play to date. And how Sam felt liberated by the sort of inbuilt chaos, the little boy running through the darkened corridor after having forgotten his shield and the whole theatre waiting for him, and that sort of controlled accident that Jez is always trying to engender. I loved all that stuff. The centrality of dignity. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. In life, too. But then I guess the theatre is life. I liked also what he's scared he'll be found out for. Thank you, Kate Weinberg, for that. I, the lying, I thought it was so good. I mean, thank goodness he's an embellisher of the truth. Thank goodness there are a hundred oranges washing up on the shore rather than just meager two. Thank God he's a storyteller. It's, well, certainly one of the great gifts of my life to hear his stories. And I also enjoyed <laughs> the image of him chucking David Edgar's book on playwriting into the Thames. I thought that was very good. I loved it all. I'm so grateful that um, that we got to sit down and do it. And I will do another one because we didn't talk about, you know, when we worked together on Parlor Song, we didn't talk about my love for his play The River, which is actually my favourite of Jez's plays. We'll come back. We'll do more. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thank you to Louise Berry for your executive producing. Thanks to Acast for all your podcast support. Thanks to Ben Backhouse. You work indefatigably producing this. You're amazing. Thank you to the stage manager, Julianne Nicholson, for your dulcet tones. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake, Phoebe Cake. Thank you both. Next week's guest is the wonderful... Zachary Quinto, and you can catch him in the last five weeks of his triumphant sold-out run in James Graham's Best of Enemies in the West End in London. But we, me and the stage manager, saw him in LA on stage this year, this last year, I should say, at the Geffen Theatre doing Edward Albee's masterpiece, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, with Ali McBeal's Callista Flockhart. As Martha, that was a lot of fun. Please join me next week for my chat with Zach. It's really, really fun stuff. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony.
stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He knows that there's no money. Being stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.